0: Well, I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit? Amen. Please be seated. Last Sunday we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus, and in particular, we celebrated His resurrection because that is what allows us to be in relationship with Him. Only in relationship with Jesus can we find everything that we need to thrive as human beings. Whether it's receiving the love that we need uh, or receiving the will and power to love others sacrificially. Whether it's the wisdom that we need to discern right from wrong or to make major life decisions. Or self-discipline or comfort or the hope we need. It's true that we can find pieces of each of those through relationships with other humans. But if we're not ultimately trusting in Jesus to provide for us in these ways, then true flourishing will elude us. So this is why the resurrection of Jesus is cause for such celebration. Because the road to flourishing can only be walked in relationship with him. And yet, there are so many who don't believe, aren't there? And as a consequence, they miss out on all the requisite blessings from a relationship with Jesus. And therefore fail to flourish as God intended. Indeed, there are many outside the church, but also within the church who wouldn't know godly flourishing if it hit him between the eyes. And yet, what holds many of them back, of course, seems to be the fact that relationship with Jesus requires faith. Now, do any of you guys remember Freddy Krueger? Freddy Krueger was from the Nightmare on Elm Street horror movies. And he was a serial killer who wore a gloved arm with razor blades on the fingers. Probably not the sort of thing you expected to hear at church today. Well, when I was a kid, I went through a phase of believing that Freddy Krueger lived under my bed. True, true story. Now, I never spotted him under there. But there was a while where I was confident that that's where he had taken up residence. I'll leave it to you guys to psychoanalyze childhood John over that. But I'd actually never seen any of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. In fact, I still haven't and have no desire to see them. But somehow I knew about Freddy Krueger. I don't know if I'd seen him, you know, in an advertisement or what. But, you know, during this phase, I remember if I had to get out of bed, you know, to go to the bathroom or something, I mean, I would scurry out of bed, you know. Because, yeah, I didn't know, I didn't want Freddy to grab my ankle or something, you know. Well, a lot of people view a faith relationship with Jesus along with the claim that he rose from the dead, as being similar to my childhood belief that Freddy Krueger was my roommate. The idea of a relationship with someone who you can't see just seems ludicrous to many, doesn't it? But as we also mentioned last Sunday, what allows Jesus to be available to all of us anywhere is that not too long after rising from the dead, He ascended into heaven and was replaced on earth by His Spirit. Two events we'll celebrate in a few weeks with Ascension and Pentecost. And this fact that Jesus is spiritually present, rather than physically present, unfortunately means He is not visible to us, right? Thus, relationship to Jesus requires faith. Trusting in something that we cannot see. And this morning, the story of Thomas in our gospel passage provides us with a wonderful opportunity to understand what can make faith so hard for so many. And frankly, help us to understand why most non-believers usually come by their unbelief pretty honestly. As we read this passage from John's Gospel, it it may be tempting to look down on Thomas for doubting that Jesus is risen. But the fact of the matter is that as Thomas refuses to believe, his perspective probably reflects exactly the way the rest of the disciples would have felt prior to having a pretty remarkable encounter with the risen Lord, right? Their encounter, which occurs in the evening occurred in the evening on the day Jesus was raised, so occurred on Easter night, is described in the first paragraph of our gospel passage. But just imagine, for the previous three days or so, these disciples would have all been a wreck, right? I mean, here they'd given up everything to follow this Jesus guy for three years. And they'd put all their confidence in him and and trusted his remarkable promises, right? But just three nights before, all of that had come crashing down. When Jesus was arrested and would die the death of a criminal the very next day. So since then, these disciples would have been reeling, right? Because the only logical conclusion they would have been capable of coming to was that everything they would believed about Jesus had been a lie. After all, that's what the crucifixion seemed to indicate. So they would have been angry, they would have been hurting, they would have been confused. But early that Sunday morning... John and Peter had seen the empty tomb with their own eyes. And now in verse 19, we're told that Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, "'Peace be with you.' And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord." And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father sent me, even so I'm sending you. And he, he breathed on them. He said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And he started talking to them about forgiveness and unforgiveness. And if you want to hear me fully exposit this first paragraph, you can look up April 3rd of last year in our online archives. But for today's purpose... Purposes, the point of this first paragraph is that the disciples had, had an encounter with Jesus. The disciples other than Thomas had had an encounter with Jesus that was effective for healing their anger and hurt from his crucifixion. And which of course resulted in their belief, their believing. However, Thomas wasn't there. As verse 24 reports. In verse 25 the other disciples tell him. We've seen the Lord. But he says to them. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails. And place my finger into the mark of the nails. And place my hand into his side. I will never believe. A lot of people actually believe. One of John's points in the story of Thomas. Is to teach us to beware of skipping church. We priests like that lesson. Why? Because when we neglect to gather with our brothers and sisters in the Lord, as Thomas had on that day, we never know what we may miss out on, right? What Thomas missed out on was the encounter that the other disciples had with Jesus. So it really shouldn't be a huge surprise, should it? That he is hindered from believing as they do. He didn't have the same experience. And the spiritual wounding that they incurred from Jesus' death. And seemingly abandoning them. That had been healed. But Thomas' hurt, it hadn't been healed. He hadn't had that healing experience. He's still in the position of hurt. Of wounding. The position they were all in before encountering Jesus. Okay, now this morning, I want us to ask ourselves, when we think about unbelievers, so those in our lives who don't follow Jesus, who deny that he's raised and deny that he's Lord, have we ever considered that what underlies their lack of belief, what blocks them from believing is, Is spiritual wounding? That they have been wounded? And that maybe what separates them from us is that they have not had the same healing experiences and encounters with Jesus that we have had? You don't often hear unbelievers described from this perspective in the church. But think about it. If God designed us for relationship with him, then it makes some sense that the inability to engage in that relationship could result from wounding. Now you say, well, what kind of wounding, John? Well, I hope I'm not breaking psychological news here when I tell you that the way we humans form our view, our kind of default views of God... And the way we interact with God, the default ways we interact with God, are heavily influenced and formed by our relationships with the most powerful people in our lives. Heavily influenced. For most of us when we were growing up, the most powerful people in our lives were our parents, right? So it's very common for there to be significant parallels between how we view and relate to God... And how we viewed and related to our parents in those formative years where we were, you know, being being formed. Both positively and negatively, right? So, for example, if our parents or other powerful people in our lives were just unconditionally loving, right? Positive. We might then find it easier than the average person to accept the idea that God unconditionally loves us. We might be more able to accept that truth than someone who had parents who weren't unconditionally loving, right? But if, for example, we had a parent who always, say, seemed distant and not in tune with us, not really, you know, physically present, but not really present. Or not even physically present. Absent then our conception of God may be that he is far off and distant from us as well. And I'm oversimplifying here, but trying to explain what I mean. Or, or, or let's say we had parents who were black and white thinkers, right? Then we're going to be more likely to think about God in black and white ways, right? Right? Whether that leads us to a fundamentalist distortion of Christianity or being polarized in the other direction in a fundamentalist black and white way against the faith. So I'm oversimplifying here, but I think you get the idea. These relationships, these powerful relationships in our lives influence how we see the most powerful uh, person in our lives, God. Well, When you take this paradigm that our relationships with the most powerful figures in our lives have formed our default conceptions of who God is, and then you think about all the trauma that can happen in people's formative years, particularly at the hands of those powerful figures all of a sudden it begins to make sense that we humans could end up with some pretty distorted views of who God is, couldn't we? And that for many, it might not be all that attractive to entrust their lives to God. That They might come by that pretty honestly. And that goes for whether we were raised in a Christian home or not... But for those of us who are raised in an unbelieving home, there is even a further obstacle, right? I mean, think about how powerful it is and how formative it is for someone to have the people raising them, teaching them, and living like there is no God. Think about how impactful that would be. To be honest, it's really a form of prolonged spiritual abuse, I'm not saying it's intentional abuse, but I'm saying that's what the environment is like for that child. And it sets many people at an enormous disadvantage when it comes to ever having a relationship with God. This is why statistically one of the greatest indicators of whether a child will be a practicing Christian as an adult is whether their father is a practicing Christian. And there are, there are hard stats on this. A 1994 study in Switzerland showed that if a father does not go to church, no matter how faithful his wife may be to the faith, statistically only 2% of those children will become regular worshipers. 2%. That ain't much. On the other hand, if a father does go regularly to church... Between two-thirds and three-quarters of their children will become churchgoers, regardless of the practice of the mother. Wow. In other words, our spiritual relationship with our fathers tends to be the most powerful influence upon our conception of and our relationship with our Heavenly Father. But it's not all on the parents, right? People can acquire spiritual wounding that drives them away or keeps them away from a relationship with Jesus in all sorts of ways, right? Some get it from having placed an expectation on God that God fails to fulfill. Usually an unfair expectation, but an expectation nonetheless, right? Right? Others endure some trauma in their lives which they can't understand why God would allow it to happen, right? We've heard that story a lot and so on. I mean, this is going to sound crazy but or jaded, I don't know. So I apologize in advance. But there are some people who when I learn their stories or when I meet their parents, I think, man, I don't think I would believe in God if I were them either. And it's not about justifying their unbelief, nor is it about blaming God for it or saying they, sh- they aren't accountable to God. I'm just saying I understand, right? I'm saying they come by that unbelief honestly from legitimate spiritual wounding. So you see, if we begin to think of spiritual wounding as being the source of unbelief, of this abnormal way of living, right? Unbelief is not the abnormal way of living. The question then is, how can such unbelief be overcome? Well, in the case of Thomas, it's actually overcome in precisely the same way it was overcome for the other disciples. Exactly the same way. Through an encounter with Jesus. He has the exact same encounter with Jesus. He just has it a week later. Right? And it has the same effect. Verse 28 says, Eight days later, which actually means the next Sunday. Right? Uh, That's how they counted days in ancient times. They counted the day that they were on as well. So where they would say eight days later, we would say seven days later. Okay? So the next Sunday today... That's why we're reading this passage today. The Sunday after the resurrection. Jesus' disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Sound familiar? Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. The climax of the Gospel of John. The first time anyone's acknowledged Jesus is God. So notice, Jesus encountered Thomas in the exact same way that he'd encountered the other disciples the week before. And what do you know? Thomas believes. So you see, the point is that if spiritual wounding is what leads someone to a position of unbelief then in order for them to get to a place of unbelief, what do they need? They need that spiritual wounding to be healed. And who is capable of providing that spiritual healing? Jesus. They need an encounter with the risen Lord. And that can look all sorts of ways. That can be through the body of Christ. That can be through Holy Eucharist. That can be through all sorts of ways. But when we begin to view unbelief in this way, it honestly exposes a lot of ways Christians can tend to engage unbelievers as pretty absurd. Um, It can kind of help us sort through what we should be doing and what we maybe shouldn't be occupying ourselves with. For example, take arguing with non-believers over doctrine or philosophy. Anybody had a great amount of success with that? Show of hands. (laughs) Not me either. Because you see, when we believe that's going to lead people into a relationship with Jesus, we are misdiagnosing unbelief as a mind problem. As an intellectual problem. When it's usually not. Actually, people's intellectual arguments against God are usually just there to protect a wounded heart, right? To protect themselves because they're spiritually wounded. Take it from a former agnostic. That's what was going on for me. I had all these intellectual arguments about whether there could be a God or not, but really I was just a hurting kid. So if we try to argue non-believers into the faith, it's kind of like trying to use water to put out a grease fire, right? Right? It may, it may be kind of our first instinct, but then it's like, wait, this doesn't work. This may be making things worse. And I think that often it is. Often we are deepening the spiritual wound rather than being conduits of healing when we, when we get argumentative with non-believers. But it also just misrepresents what the faith is all about. Because above all, Christianity is not a philosophy. It's not an intellectual assent to three sets of three ideas, you know, I'm a sinner, Jesus died, Jesus is God, Jesus died. I mean, I get it, but if that's all faith is, it's going to be a pretty empty faith, right? No, faith is a relationship. So when we start engaging everybody in a, in a, with intellectual premises, we're misrepresenting that what, what, you know, what God actually wants for them is to be in a relationship, and I've never been intellectually argued into a relationship. Right? They need to meet the risen Lord. Even take our Adam and Eve and evolution course we just did. You know, One of my purposes was with that was to reach out to unbelievers. People who are unchurched or de-churched. Meaning they used to be in the church and they're not anymore. You know, I wanted to reach out to them and I wanted to help you feel empowered to reach out to them in your lives. And we got about 15 unchurched or de people here, right? Faithfully attending, all five of them. But amidst all of the intellectual, you know, engagement and discussion we had, more important than all those facts was the message we were trying to communicate to their hearts. That the Christian faith doesn't require, you know... That we turn off our minds, or that the loudest, most polarized Christian voices out there don't actually represent what Jesus is all about. That we can love the Lord with all our minds, and, and that's great. That's how He designed it. Ultimately, for any of those non believers to become believers, they need to encounter Jesus, they need Him to show them who He really is. And whether he did that for anyone directly through the seminar or not, I don't know. But you know, the mention of polarization leads to a final regrettable way Christians are prone to engage the non-believing world around them. And that is through culture wars, which I've talked about before. May God have mercy on us for our culture wars. Whether it's raging over transgender bathrooms or gays getting a marriage license or even abortion. You know, I think I can say with a fair amount of, of confidence that God is not calling us to yell at girls with a bullhorn as they go into a Planned Parenthood. I, I'm pretty, I can say that with a, a pretty strong level of confidence. Right? He might be calling us to approach them with love in a heart of sacrificial service, but not screaming. Not bullhorns. In other words, we can say something is wrong. And we can say it's not in God's design without declaring war on it. And any politics engaged in from a spirit of resentment like that have little to do with Jesus. Even if we invoke his name or invoke his word. What's Paul say in Ephesians? Speak the truth in love. He also says in Romans, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everybody. You know, when Christians are declaring war against the non-believing world, which is all the rage these days, I guess, the message we're really sending is, I want to be comfortable more than I want you to know Jesus. That's the message we send with Culture Wars. I want to be comfortable more than I want you to know Jesus. I want my country to be this certain way more than I care about you meeting Jesus. That's the message. Doesn't lead to a lot of conversions. So you see, failing to recognize what we're really dealing with in unbelief, that we're dealing with spiritual wounding, can actually lead us to actions and even efforts of evangelism that can be counterproductive, right? And these actions can make us feel good. We can say, hey, I'm serving the Lord, right? But we may actually be deepening spiritual wounds and driving people further away from the faith. But you know, to understand unbelief as spiritual wounding that requires healing from Jesus, that should be empowering to us. Not only because it should help us to be compassionate to non-believers, but should also help us understand our role and where we can put our energy, where we should put it. Knowing that we don't have the power or ability to heal anybody's heart in and of ourselves. Only Jesus can can heal those wounds. But knowing that we do have a role to play, right? Just look at Thomas, right? The other disciples played a key role in Thomas ever even being in that room where the risen Lord appeared. In fact, one way you could frame it is that the disciples' testimony is what got Thomas to church the next Sunday, right? They went and told Thomas, we've seen the Lord, And without that, we can't know if he ever would have encountered the risen Lord. I mean, we just don't know. And even though Thomas refuses to believe after their testimony, the disciples obviously treated him with enough understanding that that next Sunday he's with them. He's in the right place at the right time and Jesus takes it from there. But before we go inviting every non-believer we know to church... We should also keep in mind some of the concepts we learned as we were going through the Sermon on the Mount about casting our pearls before swine, right? About giving, waiting to give something to someone when they can actually handle it is what that means, you remember? That takes discernment on our parts. That takes us asking God in our relationship with him. God, when is it time to actually say something versus when is it time just to show people love and acceptance and to build trust and to build relationship and to let them see Jesus in our lives? If these people are spiritually wounded, they are going to need a lot of love. So for God to overcome the unbelief that is attached to such deep woundedness, he needs us to give up trying to do the things that only he can do, right? And he wants us to embrace the authority and role he's given us to pray, to love people in actions and in words. When we abide in Jesus, they will see him in us. That's a way they can encounter him. But also prayer. Pray, 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 pray. It's the most powerful tool we have to impact such situations. If we, you know, we know from this passage that the Lord wants to draw people to himself. If we want to actually move that needle, prayer is the most powerful action we can take. So to close... You know, to suggest that an unbeliever comes by their lack of faith honestly. It's not to say they aren't accountable. It's not to say they aren't culpable before the judgment of God. But as followers of of Jesus, it should cause us to have compassion. And it should also cause us to be grateful that if we are believers... Either the risen Lord has spared us from similar spiritual wounding, or we have already been healed through encountering him. Hallelujah.